dulcet tones of Charlton Thorne. Dulcet, yes. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kai Rizdahl. It's Tuesday today, a weekly single topic program, which we do on Tuesdays. Money in the midterms uh, is uh, on the menu today. Every election, it seems, we are breaking new spending records. And with all the money, the ever-increasing pots of money around, um, there is some speculation that this could be the most expensive midterm yet. <laughs> speculation. It's probably it's always. Probably fact. I know. It's like every single cycle, we're like, this is the biggest spending cycle ever. And again. Should we, should we should tell people we're face-to-face, right? Yes, we're face-to-face. Okay. Hello. Right. I can Hello. see I, you. I, well, I don't know where to look because I don't usually look anywhere. Now I know. We had this eye. problem when you were in Washington. And now it's just like, uh, right. turn my head. Anyway. All right. We are a little over two months away from the November midterms. And so it's a good time to check in for where we are, how the money is going to shape campaigns and potentially voters across the country over these next couple of months, what kind of ads you're going to see, what the long-term consequences are. And here to make us smart is Sheila Krumholtz. She's the executive director at Open Secrets, a nonpartisan group that tracks money in politics, and they also write a bunch of really cool stories about how money moves through politics. Highly recommend that you not only look at their data, but also read their stories. Hey, Sheila. Hey there. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. What does campaign money in the midterms look like in general right now, and how does it compare to previous cycles? Well, it is early. So our very tentative, very early estimate suggests spending is at or ahead of the last midterm election in 2018, which was itself a record-smashing cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're we're looking at at least being in the ballpark and and maybe being ahead of 2018. But again, uh, we we just don't have uh, we need an update on the numbers before we can say for sure where we're at. And for context, what was the 2018 spending? 2018, there was a total spending of $5.7 billion, um, which would be in current dollars, $6.7 billion. <laughs> current and, dollars, nicely oh done. Gosh. Inflation matters. Yeah. <laughs> and it sure does. And, uh, you know, that was itself a huge leap in spending from the prior midterm election. So, each cycle we're seeing these, well, lately we're seeing these big jumps in spending. Um, you know, lots of reasons for that, which we can get into, uh, but clearly there continues to be a very high level of interest by donors. Is that federal only, or do you count state campaigns in there as well, Sheila? That is federal only. However, we do uh, now look at state level, and in fact, we're about to unveil a new feature on ballot measures in the next week or so on Mm. Open Secrets, and ballot Measures can accept uh, money from nonprofits in all the states. We're tracking about 121. Wait, wait, wait. Can you highlight why that's different, why it matters that they can accept money from nonprofits in all the states? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Funding around ballot measures is notoriously variable, uh, but they um, will see huge money in, uh, in, in some of these measures. The most expensive measure we've ever had regulated kidney dialysis treatment in California. Yeah, California, and, you bet. And, and I think that was coming back <laughs> around, too. I don't think that one's done yet, actually. Yep. So support for that measure was largely from small donors and unions mm-hmm. with a financial windfall of opposition 
from uh, led by Davida, uh, their $67 million spent just on that one measure. And we will see uh, in the ballpark of 140 or so qualifying deadlines pass in the coming weeks, um, typically 150, 180 measures. So lots of measures, big, big money, uh, and nonprofits uh, or non-disclosing yeah. nonprofits or dark money can come into right. ballot measures at any time at the last minute and totally change the calculus. Right. So I think it's important to point that out. These totals you're giving and the estimates you have are money you know about. Mm-hmm. Precisely. This right. is money that is disclosed. We won't necessarily know about all of the spending by dark money organizations, and we definitely will have be challenged to find out the sources of right. the money, which is a big problem for understanding who's pushing them and what their motivations are. Right, because when we talk about nonprofits being able to donate, like there's nonprofits like us, where we like to think we're warm, fuzzy nonprofits, and you're a nonprofit, right. but then there are also nonprofits that are like political action committees and um, social welfare tank, organizations, think right? Think tanks yeah. and things like that, and and others that you know have an a bit more of an agenda and don't have to disclose those donors. Um, so that <clears throat> that's sort of why we call them dark money is they don't have to tell the government or the public where they get their money, but they get to spend it in all these important ways. Sheila, can you talk about? Yes. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and from our perspective, the most important thing about them is that they're spending it on our elections to influence politics. Yeah. So that's the dark money donors that we can't really trace. But some money that we can trace comes from digital fundraising, like small dollar donors. Can you talk about that digital fundraising platforms like ActBlue and WinRed, um, how they work and how that kind of dynamic is playing out in the midterm so far? Yeah, ActBlue and WinRed are crucial to the story of small donors and the increase in money coming from these donors giving small amounts. Uh, so they 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 play an, a, a crucial role. They, um, both Democrats and Republicans are getting a lot of money now from small individual donations through WinRed on the right and ActBlue on the left. And they facilitate candidates raising those small donations. The candidates and party committees kind of use them as their fundraising, their online platform for fundraising. And for BackBlue, uh, adoption is practically universal for Democratic candidates at this point. They had an earlier start. They got started in 2004, whereas WinRed, their conservative counterpart, uh, just was stood up in 2019. Um, So... But WinRed is uh, really catching up fast. Uh, ActBlue has already surpassed their individual donation totals from the last round of midterms in 2018. So in 2018, they raised $1.23 billion, uh, whereas already as of June of this year, they're at $1.27 billion. And, um, and WinRed uh, has been a little slower this year. Uh, That was the story recently that their fundraising was slowing down on small donations. Mm -hmm. You know, not having Trump at the top of the ticket, I think, is is difficult. Um, Perhaps that's one of the reasons. But Trump's fundraising is reported to have picked up after the Mar-a-Lago raid. And his Save America PAC uh, joint fundraising committee redistributes money through his leadership PAC Mm -hmm. and 
Make America Great Again PAC to give to candidates and super PACs that are active in, especially in the big Senate races. So big money coming through these two uh, really important platforms uh, with kind of varying uh, levels, but but uh, especially for Act Blue, uh, really, really going strong. I should also mention that Save America PAC also distributes funds for lots of other things, including apparently uh, to fund Trump's portraits that are going into yeah. the National Portrait Gallery. $650,000. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's important to point out here, Sheila, that that this system that we have with the PACs and the super PACs and the dark money and the opacity and all of that, this is the way Congress set it up, right? Yes, this is what has been allowed to evolve. Uh, it may not have been the intention. I don't think it was personally, Uh, but it has evolved to this point and Congress is at such a standstill. There's such gridlock and polarization and hyperpartisanship that there isn't really uh, much movement at the national level to really take stock of how it's operating and and make Mm -hmm. it um, more more, uh, closely structured to the way it was supposed to be. Hmm. Uh, You know, following Watergate, uh, there was a, a system and it, yes, there were kind of chinks in the armor of regulation and disclosure and limits, uh, but that really picked up speed following Citizens United and even before, but especially with Citizens United, that really kind of threw wide the barn door for mega donors and unlimited massive donations coming from really concentrated sources. Speaking of some of those big donors, what's up with corporate giving or corporate donations, I shall say, uh, this cycle? Well, one interesting thing to note is that PAC contributions are way down this cycle. Uh, so PACs are primarily uh, made up of corporate PACs. These are political action committees representing a company. They're they're funded by employees of those companies, largely. and not, you know, it looked like they might be way down early on uh, following the January 6th corporate PAC pledges to freeze donations. Uh, But the current PAC total is the lowest it's been since 2010 Hmm. uh, through the same point in the cycle, so June of this election year. So the relative importance and power of PACs is much less uh, these days. The, 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 again, the, the, those who have more Relative power are the small donors banding together to deliver massive sums and the mega donors and billionaire candidates. Um, you know, PACs are among the few entities that donate to both parties. Mm-hmm. So uh, they they have to be accountable to to people, to their um, their members, their their corporate leadership, and they're they're basically existing to get access. They're buying access through their donations rather than direct influence. But they PACs uh, at least uh, are one uh, instance where the money is actually declining. Can I take you to the news for a second? I'm sure you saw the piece in the New York Times, I guess it was yesterday, about uh, about this billion and a half dollars that a, that a Republican manufacturing guy gave to a group headed by Leonard Leo of the, of the um, Federalist Society, formerly, I suppose. I think he's technically left. Um, number one, that is a gobsmacking amount of money, $1.6 billion. And number two, really? Yes, this is a bombshell. Um, 
It's the largest donation ever to a politically active dark money group reporting revenue, much less in its first year. This is, as far as anyone knows, this is the largest ever. Um, So it's just, yeah, it is truly gobsmacking. And as the New York Times wrote in their scoop, this makes Leonard Leo a kingmaker in conservative big money politics. More of a kingmaker, we should say, right? Leonard Leo has run judicial appointments for, for the GOP for a very long time. Yes, and I think this really will have an immediate impact. I mean, uh, clearly this is money that will be spent both this cycle and for years to come. And it helps expand his network of organizations. Uh, He's got a dark money network that continues to expand and evolve. So far beyond um, judicial nominations in recent years, he's been involved in restricting voting laws in fighting critical race theory in schools. So there are lots of ways that this money could and likely will be spent for years to come. And we probably won't even know how because through dark money groups. As somebody who (laughs) has spent so much time trying to track money in politics, it feels like it keeps getting harder. And I wonder what it does to you when... You see a story like that, and it's like, this is kind of like what you do, and then you see that. What does it feel like? It does feel a little um, deflating. You know, we're, we're not a, a reform organization other than we do defend transparency because we feel we, do, we can't do our job, and the press and the voters can't do their jobs well to, if we don't know where the money's coming from and, and why, and be able to ask the question why are they giving all this money? What do they have to, to gain or lose? In this case, we know where the money came from. It came from a billionaire who um, used this maneuver to avoid taxes on the donation. And, and of course, Leonard Leo's nonprofit uh, avoids taxes. And so, you know, it, it, it's a huge sum of money that will have a great impact. We don't know, you know, how yet, uh, but but certainly this will have, I would say, I expect it to have an immediate and ongoing impact. Um, for people, organizations uh, concerned about the concentration of money yeah. and therefore power in the hands of a very few that will influence the shape of our democracy, this is really a big deal. And But it's not new in the sense that, you know, we've had billionaire donors now for years following Citizens United and even before that giving money, soft money to the parties and through 527 organizations that have had a really inordinate influence over our elections and our democracy. Mm-hmm. And again, it brings us back to the question, you know, what are what do Americans want and expect of their democracy? It's supposed to be a government of, by, and for the people if they see and understand how the power is being diverted to the hands of a very concentrated, powerful few, they'll need to stand up and be counted and do something about it, or it will continue on in this direction. Sheila Krumholtz, executive director at Open Secrets, which is a nonpartisan group. So thank you so much, Sheila. Sheila, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you. I actually hadn't seen that story. Wow. Oh my God, it's crazy. I'm going to go and look at yeah. it. Yeah, it's wild. Goodness. It's wild. $1.6 billion, taxes 
being being uh, not avoided, but not paid all over the place because they're nonprofits and this and that. It's wild. $1.6 billion. So basically you're putting your money, just stashing it right. to do the stuff you're going to do with it anyway, right. just right. not pay taxes on it. Yeah. Unbelievable. It's amazing. I mean, look, I used to work with Peter Overby back in my NPR oh, yeah. days, and he was just so good mm-hmm. at, at campaign finance stuff. And I remember, you know, it was earlier in my career and just like, hearing his stories and like watching you just peel back this layer after layer after layer and then at that point you'd get to something at the bottom of the underneath all those layers and now you can peel back one or two layers and then just hit a get wall nowhere. you it's get right, nowhere right. And, and and that's the thing it's not what's illegal it's what's legal in campaign finance you know yeah but it's not just congress allowing it like it's I think it's important to highlight the role of the Supreme Court in yep, all of this. Yeah, very good point. Citizens United, for Citizens sure. United, yep. that ruling last year with Ted Cruz about, yep. you know... Reimbursing fi- yourself and... All these yeah. rulings, they sort of have pick away <laughs> right. over time. State-level laws make a big difference yep. as well. So, anyway, uh, you tell us all what you think. We're going to keep talking about dark money in our elections for quite a while to come. So if there's something you really want to know about how money is moving in politics, not just at the federal level, but even at the state and local level, let us know. Or if there's a story you want to share that you've seen in your community, really good to hear from you. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can send us a voice memo at makemesmart at marketplace.org. We are going to be back in just a bit. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost to splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. We're back. It is time for said news fix. And I guess now the article I really have to go back and read is that New York Times one, but then you have another one. So uh, I just, this is something that people need to be aware of come the wintertime and also uh, specifically in the northeastern part of this country. Natural gas prices today hit $10 per million British thermal units, BTUs, right? Um, Which is a record 
which is, of course, prompted by demand because the Europeans are not getting uh, Russian natural gas. And so we are sharing with them. We are also using more natural gas here. That price is a record for the post-shale fracking era, which is to say our new era of supply of natural gas. So even though we have more of it, prices are really high. And I just think everybody needs to be aware that come wintertime, when you go to turn the thermostat on, it's going to be super, super expensive. They are talking about a super spike in natural gas prices in the United States once demand goes up. So look out. And it's just one of those contextual things that um, can sort of slide by. I heard a story this morning, I think it was on Morning Report, about this factory in Poland that is basically shutting down because they make fertilizer and plastics and all these different polymers and things like that. But the feedstock that goes into it is natural gas. And because the natural gas is so high, they're basically not producing fertilizer or ammonia or certain types of plastic. And that they've got a stockpile of certain things, but it is going to have a ripple effect in terms of prices. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to make a joke here, but I think we're going to be having real discussions about sort of how people keep themselves warm without turning up the heat. And so like wearing those fuzzy slippers in addition to socks inside and the sweaters. And it's like um, people, you know, my joke, but oh, I'm going to put on another sweater. No, legit. You're going to need to wear a sweater in the house so that you don't have to turn up your heat as high because the bill might be really difficult for a lot of people to manage. So there's that. There's that. Um, My article is a follow up on on what you did on your show yesterday Mm -hmm. about quiet quitting and the Wall Street Journal thing. I keep seeing these stories bubble up about, oh, no, quiet quitting and people not, you know, being willing to invest themselves in work. And I was seeing these TikTok memes and Instagram reels or whatever with this idea without knowing what it was called. And I guess <laughs> seeing this, the angst around it is funny to me because I've yet to hear any description of quiet quitting, which is not people doing what they're paid to do. See, that's exactly it. And, <laughs> and, and this, like... right. And this, this is something I wish I had come back to the reporter with yesterday, right? It, in a lot of ways, this is super, super healthy because while you and I were coming up professionally, mm-hmm. it was always Go, do more, extra mile, FaceTime, 10 hours a day, blah, blah, blah. And that's bananas, man. That's just not right. And I think it's really healthy that there's a new generation coming in, spurred by the pandemic when it was all messed up and Mm -hmm. and people joining the workforce in really weird times saying, no, 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 no. You got me from nine to five, but that's the whole smash. And I'm not going to work through my lunch break. And if you want me to just stay a little bit extra to do that extra project, you're going to have to pay me overtime. Or if somebody quit and you want me to take on their workload, you need to pay me for that extra work. And the pearl clutching about this reminds me of this narrative about millennials, oh, if you just stopped buying your avocado toast in your yeah. Starbucks, surely yeah. you'd be able to afford a house, which is not true. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you and I ran ourselves mm-hmm. ragged mm-hmm. to advance in our careers. And I would love it if the folks coming after us did not have right. to do that. Right. And that would help with employment because when there would when there's finally a reset about realistic work expectations, it's going to create more jobs because 
folks doing two and three jobs should actually be two and three jobs. You know, I, I did an interview yesterday that I can't, I don't know when it's airing, but uh, it was a woman who had, she runs a, a market research company, 25-ish people, mm-hmm. and they had tried to go to a 32-hour week instead of a 40-hour week. Right. And she said it didn't work for a whole lot of reasons specific to her company. But what she said was, if we could overstaff, if we could have, instead of, you know, we need 25, if we could have 30 people on staff, we could make it so that everybody could work a 32-hour week and have a little sanity, you know? Yeah, interesting. And that's, I think, why so many people are experimenting with the four-hour, yep. four-day yep. work week. And so, right. anyway, every time I hear, I see one of these angsty, quiet quitting stories, it's sort of just like, eh, you're just mad people are only doing the work you're paying right. them for. Right, exactly. <laughs> totally. Okay. Right. let us proceed, Mr. Thorpe. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. I love that bit. I do, too. It's great. <laughs> it's great. All right, so first up, we have a little bit of news you can use. Hi, this is Becca in Norwalk, Connecticut. Hi, Becca. I have a pro tip for Kai. On Economics oh. on Tap this week, you mentioned you were going to buy scallions. Mm. If you haven't cooked them yet, once you've cut off all your green and light green parts, Take those little stubs, stick them in a cup of water, and they will grow new scallions. Boom! Saved you money. Wait, Thanks you mean, for making us smart. You mean the little bit with, like, roots and stuff? Yes. You didn't know this? No, I didn't know this. No, totally. You can put the bottom, yeah. the like, leave maybe, like, an inch or so yeah. of the bottom, yeah. put it in water, and they'll sprout right back up. Like, how Multiple long Multiple times. How long does it take? Maybe, like, a week. All right. All so right. you I'll just experiment. have, like, a rotating I've stack. Did. Like, right, if right, you right, have right, multiple right. scallions, you can just sort of right, do it right. over again. Okay. Anyway. All right. I'll give it a whack. I'll give it a whack. Um, yes. Okay. So before we go, we are going to leave you with this week's answer to the make me smart question, which is what is something you thought you knew, but later found out you were wrong about. And this week's answer comes from my career peak. So I'm pretty much done after this uh, because this week I interviewed actor and TV host LeVar Burton uh, for a story on Marketplace Tech. He was lovely. It was a fun little interview, actually. Yeah, yeah, it was um, it was great to talk to him. However, his answer to the make me smart question is much more serious. Oh. Wow. <sighs> I thought I knew that America was always seeking its highest reflection of itself. Mm. And what I have come to find out is that that is part of the dream, but there has always been resistance to America realizing its most full potential as a free society, right? So I thought I knew what America was was and was all about. And I recognize now that um, that I didn't, that there was a lot more that I needed to know about my country before fully and completely understanding her. Yeah, what's, so what's happening now, that's, that, that is top five most profound answers actually on this podcast to that question. I think what's happening now, right, is that people are, well, and for the last five-ish years, people are saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah. You know? And we were talking leading up to this about book bans and, you know, how... Oh, you, you, and, you and he, right. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, here's somebody who's worked for right. literacy, literacy for decades yeah. and, you know, watching this happen 
And he was like, it's, it's embarrassing. And we should be embarrassed that we are even having a discussion about book bans in this country. And it is embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's dangerous also. And yeah. Anyway, he said it. He said it well. And you can send us your thoughts and your feelings about the state of the country and the democracy and what you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about. You can send... Oh, you have more thoughts. Well, no, I was just going to say, uh, as often happens on this podcast, Bridget, that's a that's an episode we should do before the election, mm-hmm. the state of American democracy. Yeah. Right? I, I don't know what it is. That is not a fully formed idea, but but uh, somehow. Yeah, I mean, I remember back to when we talked about Kyle to Kyle Cheney about January 6th, yep, yep. and we asked him how close we were yeah. to losing it all. Right. And this was before we had even seen as much oh, evidence. We knew, yeah. And he was just like, it was really, yeah. really yeah. close. And the more that we saw in those hearings, the more, you know, you recognize just how close we were. Um, Anyway, send us your answer to the Make Me Smart question. You can send it with a voice memo or email makemesmart at marketplace.org. Voicemail 508-827-6278, 508-UB-SMART. Now you can see my little dance in uh, person. No, da- no dancing in the studio. This is my studio. No <laughs> dancing in the studio. Make Me Smart is directed and produced by Marissa Cabrera. Our intern is Olivia Jow. Ellen Rolfe writes our newsletters. Today's program is engineered by Charlton Thorpe. Jay Seabold is going to mix it down later. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. The senior producer is Bridget Bodner, who has a super cute haircut I can see in person. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. Bridget, should I have noticed the haircut? Is that a bad thing? Well, it may not be new to you because you see her more often. I don't see her. I see her on a Zoom as often as you do. It's not like anybody's coming in. It is cute. It's cute, yeah. See, Marissa's nodding. There we go. And Bridget's just sitting there going, oh, you guys, shut up. (laughs) Shut up. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending, like, all my tips. I was definitely spending, like, $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.